This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So, sentencing, <laughs> sentencing is the main event in the federal criminal justice system. Sentencings are actually a much, much bigger part of the process than trials. In 2012, which is the most recent year for which we have data, 88,000 federal criminal cases were disposed of. Of those 88,000 cases, just 5% ended in an acquittal. Sorry, not 5%, 0.5% ended in an acquittal. 99.5% of those cases ended in a conviction and a sentencing. These numbers, I think, are somewhat stunning to all of us, but they show why anybody who's interested in criminal law or criminal procedure really needs to understand sentencing. I'm Allison Siegler. Um, I'm a clinical professor of law and the director of the Federal Criminal Justice Clinic. In the last decade, there has been really an epic power struggle. It's a struggle that's been going on within the federal judiciary, and it's been about sentencing authority. Who has control over sentencing? So 10 years ago, the Supreme Court dramatically shifted the balance of power. What they did was two things. In essence, they gave more power to district court judges, who are the judges who impose sentence in the first instance, and they took power away from the courts of appeals judges who review sentences. Since then, the courts of appeals have repeatedly rebelled against the Supreme Court's sentencing jurisprudence. And they've been violating the law as laid down by the court. I'm going to talk to you about those rebellions. But first, I want to briefly tell you about Hang on a second. First, I want to briefly tell you about something else, which is a, a client that our clinic had, a man named Brian. And the reason I want to tell you Brian's story at the outset is because it gives you a sense of how um, the distribution of sentencing power impacts people and impacts families and impacts communities. So Brian grew up in Englewood, which, as you know, is one of the poorest, most crime-ridden communities in the city. And he grew up without a dad. Um, he, ha- he really credits his wrestling coaches with keeping him on the right track a- as a teenager. When my students and I met Brian, he was in his late 30s. He was raising his daughter as a single father. And he was working long hours at a factory. But even with these responsibilities, Brian would return home to Englewood every single day. And he would serve as a volunteer football and wrestling coach for at-risk teens. He did this because he remembered how his own coaches had had saved him from the streets. My students and I were appointed to represent Brian in a nonviolent federal criminal case. Under the federal sentencing guidelines, though, Brian was facing four years in prison. And that's even after he owned up to the crime, pled guilty. The prosecutor was asking for him to do the full four years under the guidelines. 
As Brian's case approached sentencing, my students and I worked very hard to try to convey to the judge, you, you know, locking Brian away from society is going to do more harm than good. That was our goal, and that was our effort. And so we wrote a motion for him, and we attached to our motion many letters of support from Brian's family and friends and community. And one of those letters was from a kid who Brian had coached. And this young, wrote, this young man wrote, a, wrote to the judge something that I want to quote from. Okay? He said, Brian told me, wrestling teaches you things, like how to have discipline in the world, how to have order in your life, and how to respect people. Brian taught me how to be strong and to do the best I can at whatever I do. Brian taught me how to live my life. After the judge came to understand Brian as a person through letters like this, he declined to promote to, to impose that four-year sentence. Um, and he decided to impose what we call, and what I'm going to talk about in this, in this talk, is a below-guideline sentence. Okay? So instead of locking Brian away for four years, he sentenced Brian to probation. That was a year ago. Brian is doing great. He, uh, he has been promoted at work. He continues to mentor the kids in his community. But if the judge had not had the power and the authority and the discretion to impose a below-guideline sentence in that case, it would have cost taxpayers $120,000 to incarcerate Brian for those four years. Worse still, Brian would have lost his job and his ability to support his family. His daughter would have lost her only parent. And his students would have lost the coach who was keeping them on the right track. Until 10 years ago, the judge in Brian's case would not have had the power to sentence him to probation. So I want you to keep Brian's story in mind as we talk. First, we're going to talk about the shifting balance of sentencing power over time, and then we're going to talk about the Courts of Appeals' recent rebellions. To give you some context, there are three eras of federal sentencing, three primary eras, and each one is characterized by a different balance of power among the, between the district courts and the Courts of Appeals. So the first era of federal sentencing started in colonial times and lasted for about 200 years. And we're going to call that the pre-guidelines era. During that time, judges had unfettered discretion, district judges, in handing down sentences. There was also essentially no appellate review of sentences in that period. So the courts of appeals were basically powerless to police district courts. But scholars and legislatures became worried that sentencing judges had too much discretion, and so the pendulum swung. And it took a really drastic swing that moved us into the second era of federal sentencing, um, which we'll call the mandatory guidelines era. To cabin the discretion of district court judges, the federal sentencing guidelines were created by Congress. And the guidelines are an extremely rigid mathematical system. From 1989 through 2005, the guidelines were utterly mandatory, meaning that district court judges were required to adhere to them in imposing sentence. And the guidelines really pre pre prevented judges from imposing individualized sentences that were carefully tailored to the offender and the offense. That's because the guidelines only let judges consider two narrow aspects of an individual defendant. Number one, the offense he committed, and number two, what his prior convictions look like. 
So here I'm going to show you the guideline sentencing table. I'm going to zoom in a little so you can see that there's two axes, okay? There's a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. The vertical axis is called the offense level. The offense level measures the severity of the particular crime that the defendant is charged with and convicted of. So to calculate the guidelines range of somebody like Brian, um, what the judge does is first sort of plots the seriousness of the crime on that vertical axis. And the way she would plot that is through this massive set of three books, okay, that, that, that lay out how exactly a judge calculates the guidelines. Um, the judge next plots along the horizontal axis the defendant's prior convictions, okay? That's called the criminal history category. And then, when all is said and done, the judge simply draws her fingers together, okay? From one to the other, and that's the defendant's sentencing range, okay? That's a range of months right there. So, for example, you'll see, um, I just give you an example at the bottom, if the defendant's offense level is 29 and his criminal history category is four, his sentencing range is 121 to 151 months, by which we mean 10 to 12 and a half years in federal prison. So the kinds of things that I told you about Brian basically don't figure into the guidelines calculation at all, right? For the most part, the guidelines explicitly forbid a judge from considering all sorts of facts about a defendant, including his family responsibilities, his employment history, his charitable works, mental health problems, medical ailments, age, the list goes on and on and on. Um, during the era of mandatory guidelines, sentencing judges were required to impose a sentence within that narrow guideline range in the vast majority of cases, with a few narrow exceptions, okay? So, to contrast this second era with the first, the mandatory guideline system dramatically limited district court discretion, and it transferred that power elsewhere in the system, transferred that power to the federal courts of appeals. The guidelines had the force of law. And, and, and sentencing judges, as I said, they were only allowed to deviate in very rare circumstances. The authority to police sentences that fell outside that range, the authority to police when the district court did deviate was vested in the courts of appeals. So using our example, 121 to 151 months, if the judge imposed a sentence below 121 months or above 151 months, that's where the court of appeals would be able to step in and police. Um, during the era of mandatory guidelines, the courts of appeals engaged in really aggressive appellate review of outside guideline sentences. If a judge imposed a sentence below the guidelines range, um, the courts of appeals would really scrutinize the judge's reasons for that sentence, and, and reversals of below guideline sentences became commonplace. These reversals grew to form a dense web of case law that further narrowed and restricted judges' abilities, ability to go below the guideline range. This large body of law, I should say, developed in part because federal prosecutors were appealing almost every below guideline sentence that was imposed. So in this and other ways, the guidelines not only increased the power of the courts of appeals, they also increased the power of, of federal prosecutors, the power that they had over sentencing outcomes. All of this, this brings us to the third era of federal sentencing. During the third era, the power of the courts of appeals was dramatically reduced. The third era began in 2005 with a case called Booker. 
This is a Supreme Court case. The third era now continues to this day, and so we're calling this the post-Booker era. This is what happened in Booker. And this is a vast oversimplification because it's a really complicated case, but in essence, uh, the Supreme Court held that mandatory guidelines violate the Sixth Amendment. And by, so by a very narrow five to four margin, the Supreme Court deemed the mandatory guideline system to be unconstitutional. Then a different majority of five justices crafted a very interesting remedy to the problem. What they did was they made the guidelines advisory rather than mandatory, okay? Booker did another thing, which was it revitalized the federal sentencing statute. This statute had been enacted in the 1980s, but it had uh, been trumped by the mandatory guidelines. It had really lain dormant for all all those years. Um, The statute is codified at 18 U.S. Code 3553A. What Booker did was, the ultimate result was, that it gave district judges new and substantial discretion to impose sentences outside the guidelines. The sentencing statute, 3553A, gives judges a lot of latitude to consider all those facts that were off limits under the guidelines. So, you know, including the kinds of facts that Brian's judge considered. So, for example, um, the statute requires, not just allows, but requires judges to consider the nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant. And that puts all of these things back on the table as considerations at sentencing. Um, So the the 3553A does other things, too. It, It gave judges so much leeway to impose sentences outside the guidelines range because it had another provision, which is called the parsimony provision, which requires judges to impose a sentence that is, quote, sufficient but not greater than necessary to promote four very broad and all-encompassing purposes of punishment, essentially retribution, general deterrence, specific deterrence, and rehabilitation. By making the guidelines advisory, what Booker did was it shifted the balance of power yet again. Booker gave sentencing judges far more power than they'd had during the mandatory guidelines era, though not quite as much as they'd had in in that first era, pre-guidelines. In this third era, judges are still required to calculate the guidelines, but they're no longer required to impose sentences within the guidelines, within that narrow range of months, right? They're now allowed to impose sentences that are either below the guidelines or, if they want, they can impose sentences that are above the guidelines by reference to this statute, 3553A, as long as they can justify that sentence as supported by the purposes of punishment and reflecting other considerations in the statute, they're allowed to impose outside guideline sentences. So when Booker returned sentencing authority to the district courts, it did something else. It drastically limited the sentencing power of the courts of appeals, Okay, their power to police sentences. So during our current post-Booker era, where we are today, Courts of appeals are are no longer just allowed to reverse any below-guideline sentence they disagree with, which was basically the way it was during mandatory guidelines. Well, the courts of appeals have been unable to accept this new paradigm. They've repeatedly rebelled against the Supreme Court's post-Booker sentencing jurisprudence. And the Department of Justice and its constituent U.S. Attorney's Office have really been foot soldiers in this war because they're the ones who who appeal the cases and get them in front of the courts of appeals in the first place. These rebellions have taken two forms, and I'm going to discuss each in some detail. 
So first, my gray box here. The courts of appeals have over-policed below guideline sentences. That is, they have aggressively reversed sentences that fall below the guidelines, even when those sentences are properly imposed within the law. Second thing is my blue box here, which is the courts of appeals have under-policed within guideline sentences. That means they've upheld within guideline sentences even when those sentences violate the law, even when they've been imposed in a procedurally erroneous way. Okay, And you have to understand, both forms of this rebellion lead to the same result. They ensure that sentences adhere more closely to the guidelines. Right? They take away our below-guideline sentences. Every time the courts of appeals have rebelled, the Supreme Court has put down the rebellion. And I want to just give you, before we get into the specific rebellions, a concrete idea of how these rebellions play out in the court system. Okay? So... On the over-policing front, here's how it plays out. A sentencing judge imposes a below-guideline sentence. Then the U.S. Attorney's Office appeals that sentence. The Court of Appeals sides with the prosecutor and reverses the sentence. And then the Supreme Court steps in, reverses the Court of Appeals, and upholds the original below-guideline sentence. On the under-policing front, a sentencing judge imposes a within-guideline sentence, within that narrow range. The defendant appeals, saying the judge committed procedural error. The judge didn't follow the proper procedures in imposing this sentence. The Court of Appeals sides with the prosecution and affirms the within-guideline sentence. And then the Supreme Court steps in, reverses the Court of Appeals, and reverses the within-guideline sentence. So, first, let's talk about the key over-policing rebellions. The way the lower courts reacted to Booker was really quite fascinating. Because, remember... Booker held mandatory guidelines are unconstitutional, right? Sentencing judges took the court at its word. They treated the guidelines as advisory, and they began issuing below-guideline sentences when they thought it was appropriate under the sentencing statute. But the courts of appeals were really used to policing sentences that fell outside the guidelines range. They've been doing that for many years at this point, and it was very hard for them to accept that the rules had changed. And so the courts of appeals rebelled, as I said, by over-policing these (laughs) below-guideline sentences in violation of the Supreme Court's ruling in Booker. And I'm going to give you three examples of over-policing, okay? Um, I'll I'll call the first over-policing rebellion the Extraordinary Circumstances Rebellion. So here's what happened. Soon after Booker was decided, um, courts of appeals began over-policing. And the way they did this was that they forbid sentencing judges from issuing below-guideline sentences unless the defendant had presented extraordinary circumstances in support of a lower sentence. So to give you an example, um, a sentencing judge, let's say, would impose a sentence on someone like Brian, a below-guideline sentence, out of consideration of the fact that he was a single father of a young daughter, right? But the Court of Appeals would reverse that sentence and would hold that the defendant's family circumstances, these circumstances are just not extraordinary enough to merit a below-guideline sentence. So within two years of Booker, fully seven courts of appeals had um, imposed this extraordinary circumstances requirement. In 2007, the Supreme Court stepped in and ended this particular over-policing rebellion in a case called Gall, Gall versus United States. And here's what the Gall court held very clearly. We reject an appellate rule that requires extraordinary circumstances to justify a sentence outside the guideline range. 
Gall explained, this extraordinary circumstances rule just comes too close to making the guidelines mandatory again. And so, you know, the point was, if a defendant needed to show extraordinary circumstances in order to get a below-guideline sentence, then judges would be required to impose within-guideline sentences in all but the most exceptional and rare of cases, once again. And so, essentially, the court struck down the rule because Booker had already deemed mandatory guidelines to be unconstitutional, and this was recreating the same problem. Um, Letting that particular court of appeals rule stand would really have resulted in unconstitutional sentences. All right, that's rebellion number one. Around this same time, seven courts of appeals rebelled by creating a second rule that also over-policed sentencing judges. And here's how that second rebellion played out. So, sentencing judges around the country were very disturbed by the fact that the guidelines treated crack cocaine and powder cocaine completely differently. In fact, the guidelines punished one ounce of crack cocaine as harshly as 100 ounces of powder cocaine. This became known as the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity. Sentencing judges, out of concern for this, began to impose below guideline sentences in crack cases to ameliorate this disparity. But the courts of appeals stepped in and again began over-policing. This time they held, no, sentencing judges are not allowed to impose below guideline sentences in crack cases. And eventually the case made its way to the Supreme Court, um, and the court quelled this rebellion also in 2007 in a case called Kimbrough versus United States. In essence, all Kimbrough held was that the crack cocaine guideline is just as advisory as any other guideline. And this is, a, again, a vast oversimplification, but that is the essence of Kimbrough. Like the rule struck down in Gaul, the Court of Appeals struck down Um, a rule in Kimbrough that was effectively making the crack cocaine guideline mandatory and therefore was resulting in unconstitutional sentences. But even after Gall and even after Kimbrough, the courts of appeals continued to over-police sentencing judges. And so as we move to the third and final over-policing rebellion I'm going to discuss, you have to understand the Eighth Circuit was one of the most aggressive over-policers of anybody, okay? Um, even after they got slapped down with the Supreme Court in Gaul, because that case came up from the Eighth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit just continued to regularly reverse below guideline sentences, and they continued to hold that all sorts of facts were like off limits from sentencing judges' consideration at the time of sentencing. In 2001, the Supreme Court took up the case of Pepper versus United States, and there the court issued another stinging reversal and emphasized, again, district court judges have a broad authority to consider a really wide range of facts at sentencing and broad authority to impose below guideline sentences. Gall, Pepper, and Kimbrough all characterize what I term these over-policing rebellions. And keep in mind, the courts of appeals over-policing rebellions were aimed at forcing district judges to hew more closely to the guidelines, right? Well, so each Supreme Court reversal gave district judges the new power and authority and discretion to impose sentences outside the guidelines. The courts of appeals also rebelled in another way, which I want to talk to you about now, which is they've been under-policing sentences that fall within the guidelines, under-policing within guideline sentences. That rebellion leads us to the same result, right, as the over-policing rebellion it ensures more within guideline sentences. To understand this under-policing rebellion, you have to know that 
In the Gall case, the Supreme Court laid out various very clear rules for lower courts to follow, both rules for the district court and rules for the Court of Appeals. So to give us some context for the under-policing rebellion, I'm going to walk you through some of the key rules. Um, The Gall Court required sentencing judges to follow certain procedures. One procedural rule is that the sentencing judge has to make an individualized assessment based on the facts presented. She's not allowed to presume that the guidelines range is reasonable. And another procedural rule is the sentencing judge can't just consider the guidelines. She also has to consider all of the 3553A factors. Okay? So those are the rules for the district court. Gall also laid down some clear policing rules for the courts of appeals. And I call them policing rules because these are rules that kind of defined and curtailed the courts of appeals policing power when it came to sentencing. Um, Specifically, uh, the Supreme Court held that the courts of appeals have to ensure that sentencing judges follow certain procedures, right? The procedures I just laid out, okay? So, for example, if the sentencing judge presumes that the guidelines range is reasonable, that's procedural error. And the court of appeals is supposed to reverse Okay. Um, Likewise, if a sentencing judge doesn't consider the 3553A factors or an argument that a defendant or the government makes under 3553A, the Court of Appeals is supposed to find procedural error and is supposed to reverse. The bottom line is that when, for example, a defendant appeals a within-guideline sentence, the Court of Appeals is never allowed to just assume that the judge followed the proper procedures. But the court has to look at what the judge did and examine the procedures the, the, the judge followed. Okay. Courts of appeals have rebelled against doing that. Specifically, what they've been doing is they've been looking the other way. When sentencing judges impose within guideline sentences and actually commit procedural error in the process. Instead of reversing these procedurally erroneous sentences, the courts of appeals have been affirming those sentences and just totally ignoring the error. And I'm going to give you some examples of this. So in 2009, um, the Supreme Court took a case called Nelson. Um, And it provides a really good example of this under-policing trend. At this point, Nelson is the only Supreme Court case on under-policing. But we're going to get to some other cases in a minute. What happened in Nelson is that the district judge clearly stated during the sentencing that he was according the guidelines range a presumption of reasonableness. And as we've just said, that was a clear procedural error on the part of the judge, right? Gall forbade sentencing judges from presuming the guidelines range to be reasonable. But the Fourth Circuit allowed the sentence to stand and held that it did not constitute procedural error. The Supreme Court in Nelson stepped in and issued a really scathing reversal. It's a per curiam, but it's pretty clear it's Justice Scalia. Um, <laughs> uh, it's got some great language. But um, the essence of what the court said was they, the court reiterated this. The guidelines are not only not mandatory on sentencing courts, they're not to be presumed reasonable. We think it plain from the comments of the sentencing judge that he did apply a presumption of reasonableness to Nelson's guidelines range. Under our precedents, that constitutes error. And these italics are not mine. These are the Supreme Court. These are Justice Scalia's probably, right? Okay. So that brings us to the present day. In recent years, the courts of appeals have um, increasingly under-policed within guideline sentences. In fact, they've been creating whole new appellate rules 
to uphold sentences that really should be reversed. And I call these appellate rules carve-outs, okay? So we're going to look at one rule um, that I call the stock arguments carve-out. This carve-out arises in much the same way that I've described under-policing arising in general. And I'm going to give you a really concrete example as an illustration of this. So we're going to talk about an an Illinois federal case called United States versus Gary. Um, In this case, the defendant, Keith Gary, was facing 12 to 18 months in prison. That was his guidelines range. At the sentencing hearing, Mr. Gary's attorney argued that his client's family circumstances warranted a sentence below the guideline range, a sentence of probation. Um, The lawyer explained that Mr. Gary had two young children who depended on his emotional and financial support. There was another wrinkle in the Gary case, which is that Mr. Gary and his wife were both being prosecuted for the crime, and there was some evidence that the wife was actually the ringleader of the offense. The lawyer explained that a non-guideline sentence of probation would enable Mr. Gary to continue caring for and supporting his children while his wife was clearly going to be incarcerated. Her guidelines range was higher. And the evidence showed also, the lawyer presented evidence to show that there was no one else who could take care of the children if both of the Garys were incarcerated. Uh, Mrs. Gary's parents were not suitable child care providers. Her sister had a drug and alcohol problem. There was just no one else. So... Looking at the sentencing transcript, it's clear that the judge simply ignored this family circumstances argument. In fact, the judge gave the argument such short shrift that this is what the defense attorney said. I don't know whether the court is taking family circumstances into consideration at all. If the court is dismissing that with respect to Keith Gary as being a mitigating factor, I mean, the the, the lawyer literally couldn't understand if the judge had even thought about it, and the judge simply responded, I consider the facts of the kids in this case. And that was it. So, and then the judge imposed a within-guideline sentence, okay? So, under Supreme Court sentence, uh, precedent and under the sentencing statute, what the judge and Gary did was clearly procedural error, okay? For a couple reasons. First, the judge entirely ignored this family circumstances argument, and that's the procedural error of failing to consider the 3553A factors, okay? And remember, the Gall Court says... A sentencing judge commits a significant procedural error when he fails to consider the 3553A factors straight from the mouth of the Supreme Court. In addition, what does 3553A require? 3553A requires consideration of the defendant's history and characteristics. Well, that includes everything about the client's history, right? Family circumstances clearly comes under this heading. And furthermore, the Supreme Court said in Pepper very explicitly something about family relationships, which is that they are a critical part of the history and characteristics, quoting the statute, of a defendant that Congress intended sentencing courts to consider. So we have a lot of information here telling us that this was procedural error for failing to consider this 3553A factor. And then secondly, there's another procedural error, which is also highlighted in Gall, which is that the judge failed to adequately explain the chosen sentence. If the judge was going to reject the below-guideline request, The judge needed to say why, needed to say something more than I consider the fact of the kids in this case, okay? So, given these procedural errors, you would have expected the Seventh Circuit to reverse this within-guideline sentence when Mr. Gary appealed, but that's not what happened. Instead, the Seventh Circuit upheld the within-guideline sentence, okay? 
So this is how they did it. They did it by employing this thing that I call the stock arguments karma. Okay? What they did was they labeled Mr. Gary's family circumstances argument stock. They called this a stock argument in mitigation. Okay? And what they said is the sentencing court is free to reject without discussion stock arguments in mitigation that sentencing courts see routinely, including a routine family ties argument. So the Court of Appeals labeled Mr. Gary's family circumstances argument stock, and they said it is just fine for the district court to completely ignore that argument. Mind you, the Seventh Circuit has used this stock argument carve-out in over 20 published cases and almost 40 unpublished cases. So this is running rampant in our circuit right now, this this particular carve-out that ignores procedural error. In these cases, what the Seventh Circuit allows sentencing judges to do is to just completely ignore a whole host of facts about a defendant by labeling those facts stock. Okay, So beyond the family circumstances exception that's in cases like Gary, we've got a whole number of other ones. They've also considered employment history to be stock, education, age, criminal history, arguments relating to all of these things get labeled stock and, and carved out and, and easily dismissed by the Seventh Circuit. Um, and, and the Seventh Circuit reasons judges can ignore these arguments because you know, they're routinely raised and they relate to all sorts of characteristics that defendants have in common. I mean, this is clearly wrong, right? The Supreme Court and 3553A require a sentencing judge to consider all of these facts. That is the law of the land. Just because a lot of defendants have families you know, doesn't, doesn't make one particular defendant's argument about his own specific family circumstances something that's frivolous and can just be ignored, okay? Um, but over and over again, the Seventh Circuit has used this carve-out to wrongly affirm within guideline sentences that are, in fact, procedurally erroneous. And I should say, the stock argument carve-out does not just violate the Supreme Court's precedent. It does not just violate the sentencing statute, 3553A. As if that weren't bad enough, it also violates the Sixth Amendment. And I'm going to turn to what happened in Mr. Gary's appeal in order to show you why and how this constitutional violation arises. So, on appeal, uh, the Seventh Circuit held that Mr. Gary's argument was stuck because his family circumstances were not exceptional. And this is what they said. Mr. Gary did not argue his imprisonment would affect his children to a degree beyond the effects that any child must suffer when a parent is imprisoned, and he did not present evidence of any exceptional circumstances. What the Seventh Circuit said was, they went on to say, if Mr. Gary had presented evidence of some kind of extraordinary circumstances, then the judge would have been required to address his argument. The judge couldn't have just ignored it. This is what they said. A sentencing court cannot summarily disregard a defendant's potentially meritorious argument as it relates to extraordinary family circumstances. So they drew this line between ordinary and extraordinary. Here's why this stock arguments carve-out violates the Constitution. As you recall from this earlier slide that you've already seen, the Supreme Court in Gaul rejected an appellate rule that requires extraordinary circumstances to justify a sentence outside the guideline range. The Gall court made clear that the problem with an extraordinary circumstances requirement is that it comes too close to making the guidelines mandatory. And as we remember, 
mandatory guidelines are unconstitutional. See Booker in every case since then from the U.S. Supreme Court, right? By reinstituting the extraordinary circumstances requirement, the stock arguments carve-out violates the Constitution. This stock arguments carve-out represents just one of several current rebellions um, that, that the courts of appeals are waging in this ongoing battle to um, defy the Supreme Court's post-Booker jurisprudence. I don't have time to get into the other ones, but fundamentally, the Supreme Court needs to step in and stop this latest string of rebellions. And I'll tell you why. You know, on a basic level, right, the courts of appeals should not be allowed to continue um, violating Supreme Court law and violating the sentencing statute and violating the Constitution, right? But, but there are other reasons that, that we would want the courts of appeals to be brought back in line. These reasons are things that go back to Brian's case. So the, ba- the balance of power that the Supreme Court has instituted at this point has worked really well um, to sort of, um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, okay? And I'll tell you why. In, in my mind, I kind of see the three eras of sentencing as breaking down into the Goldilocks porridge framework, okay? So, um, as you recall, the first era was characterized by unfettered district court discretion and no appellate power to police. Let's call that the too hot era, okay? Then the second era was characterized by virtually no district court discretion, and unfettered appellate power to police. And I call this the too cold era. Obviously, it was too cold, right? Mandatory guidelines required judges to ignore all of the complexity of human beings and the human experience and just reduce everybody to a range of months. The current third era is characterized by substantial district court discretion and limited appellate power to police sentences. And in my mind, this balance is really just right. And that's because it's important for district judges to have the discretion and the authority to impose individualized sentences based on on full and nuanced consideration of the characteristics of the defendant, the circumstances of the offense, just as the judge in Brian's case did. We want judges to have that authority. Over-policing is a problem because district judges are the ones who sit at the front lines. They have the institutional competence, right, to play that role. They see and hear all the evidence. We want them making those decisions and listening to everything. District judges also shouldn't be allowed to abdicate that role, you know, and simply ignore the facts and arguments presented by the parties. And and that's what happens when courts of appeals under-police. So by over-policing and under-policing, the courts of appeals are upsetting this delicate balance. And therefore, the Supreme Court should continue suppressing these rebellions. Thank you. I will take questions. Yes? Professor thank you for such a fascinating talk. And it's interesting how it extends in dialogue with Judge Kitanji Brown Jackson's intervention a few weeks ago with the Portland Sentencing Commission. I just have a basic question. Like, it sounds from your direction that while you label this regime just right, you really would prefer to go back to the original era, but just with the appellation that it's this new regime so that it sounds more orderly, but in practice, it kind of gives a lot of discretion to deviate. And relatedly, so if you could comment on that, and relatedly, um, I guess I have a hard time understanding how guidelines can be advisory, but not presumed reasonable. There seems to be a contradiction. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think on your first point, there is something to be said for throwing out the entire guidelines project, right? And just letting judges have unfettered discretion. I think that there's something, you know, I personally, on a personal level, struggle with that question of would that be the right answer or is the right answer to have guidelines that do some cabining and structuring of the judge's discretion and then have the sentencing statute in tandem with those guidelines giving more discretion to make decisions that don't, about things that don't fall within the guideline scheme. Um, I, you know, one problem, one, one aspect of the guideline scheme that makes it not so just right is that it's incredibly harsh. And in, historically, the guidelines have been ratcheted up and up and up rather than any kind of effort to bring the guidelines down. And so you do end up with, and I've talked to judges about this, I've talked to judges who think that you know, 75% of the guidelines are too high. So there is something to be said for just throwing out the whole thing. Um, but I think maybe you know, the, the place I came to in this was maybe what we have right now, it's working very well. It seems to be working well. And there's actually really clear sort of statistical evidence that what's happening right now is not some kind of off the reservation like all judges are giving below guideline sentences. It's actually been quite balanced and sentences are pretty much in line with where they were um, in, yeah, at one point in the guidelines era. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, as far as how many below guideline sentences, percentage of below guideline sentences, percentage of within guideline sentences. Wait, your second question? The presumption of oh. illness, how that uh, it's complicated, but the, the, the Supreme Court has said courts of appeals are allowed to impose a presumption to presume a guideline sentence to be reasonable. When a, when a district judge imposes a within-guideline sentence, the court of appeals is allowed to presume that sentence to be substantively reasonable. They're not allowed to have a presumption of procedural reasonableness, because as I said, the courts of appeals have to re-examine the procedures that happen at sentencing. But the district court in the first instance the, 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 the Supreme Court's been really clear in a couple of these cases, is not allowed to impose a presumption of reasonableness because that will simply recreate a mandatory guideline system. I mean, that's the way the courts explain it. Ben, yeah. Um, so it seems like with Gary, the obvious, if the Seventh Circuit had reversed it and said, no, you can't do that, it seems like the obvious response from district courts would just be a sort of boilerplate, I considered this, I considered this, I considered this. And especially in a world where we take seriously that district court judges are the people on the front lines who know what's best, and they get that deference in the Court of Appeals. I mean, what is the actual solution to Gary other than, hey, we reverse it, judge says, I consider that. I, you know, it's a really, this is a very good question. Uh, there, that is definitely a way of looking at my argument, which is to say there's an easy solution if the judge wants to continue to impose the within-guideline sentence. What I would say is, I still think, even if that's the solution that a judge is going to go with, I still think we want to hold judges to the standard the Supreme Court has set. I still think we want, we want to make sure that the judge has actually considered everything. It may well be that the, judge, that the judge just sort of gave short shrift to this argument, and if he'd really considered some of the facts that were being put in front of him, he might have made a different decision. It may also be, Ben, that you may be right. It's possible that every judge like the judge in Gary is going to come back on, you know, after reversal on remand and going to say, I considered all of those things and I'm still going to impose my within guideline sentence. But I think there is a benefit to holding everyone to the standard that the Supreme Court has set and expecting courts at all levels to adhere to that. Yeah, LT. So... I'm definitely on board with the idea of considering these 35-53 factors. Absolutely, it seems important in sentencing. But 
you know, I think in part the guidelines were intended to prevent discrimination, right? So applying sentences to different populations of people and under the pretext of judicial discretion. So what I'm afraid of is, you know, another factor in 3553A is uh, preventing unwarranted disparities, right? So how do we know we haven't right, quite reached the right balance, which is to say that the Court of Appeals should have a little bit more power in that they can see the entire district, so they're actually more than the district court, better able to see that we're applying uniform sentences to different populations. You know, this is, there, there could have been a whole talk about unwarranted disparities, which is a whole, which is a, a thought that I had, um, and, I, and I talk about that a lot in my sentencing class, um, but here's the thing. Part of the federal sentencing rules, and this is actually in 3553A itself, is that um, judges are to endeavor to um, avoid unwarranted sentencing disparities. And the real issue is about what is a warranted sentencing disparity and what's an unwarranted sentencing disparity. So the problem with the guideline system is that it created the flip side, just the same problem, unwarranted sentencing uniformity. Okay? So... Everybody, even no matter how different they looked, all sorts of people were treated in exactly the same way. The concern about unwarranted disparities is that you're going to take two people who um, really look the same and that two different judges are going to treat them differently. But the, the truth is, and this is something I know from spending 15 years working in this system, no two defendants look the same. It's not true. There's always going to be differences. And, you know... Um, individualized considerations that are going to be present in one case and not another. And so if you prevent judges from considering all of those things, you are going to end up with a system of unwarranted uniformity. And, and I think that where we have it now, again, may be the right balance, understanding that it's always a, that's always a delicate balance. Yeah, Caitlin. So during your talk, um, we, we focused on mostly within guideline sentences and below guideline sentences. Could you fill in a little bit about above guideline sentences, both um, in the mandatory era and in the post-Booker era? Did public and private defenders kind of enjoy the same benefits as the government did with below um, guideline sentences when they were above? Did, were they struck down more frequently or were they applied at the same rate? Yeah, so... Um, it's interesting. There's very over time. If you look at the sentencing statistics, there are very few above guideline sentences imposed in the scheme of the system. There are some districts, some places in the country, and you can probably imagine where they are, where above guideline sentences are, are a lot more common than they are elsewhere. But above guideline sentences end up being I don't know. It's like two or three percent of sentences are above the guidelines, so they don't figure in as much. Um, courts of appeals definitely, if you look at them closely, they. If you look at these sentences closely and what happens to them on appeal, they treat them differently. Uh, I, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me right now, but they are upheld more often on appeal, especially during the, with the mandatory guidelines era, than the below guideline sentences were. But above guideline sentences, you know, it's going to take an individual defendant to appeal that above guideline sentence to the judge. Below guideline sentences, there was kind of a, a, an across-the-board effort by, the, by you know, the U.S. attorney's offices around the United States to appeal those sentences. And so there was a more concerted, you know, goal-oriented, uh, cohesive movement there than there was ever, of course, with the individual above-guideline sentence appeals. Yes? So I can understand why the U.S. attorney is the bad guy trying to appeal, trying to increase the sentence. Why is the bad guy also the problem of people? Why are they having the rebellion? Because you're describing what seems to be a concerted 
action by the Court of Appeal, which is a bit puzzling why Supreme Court and the District Court are the good guys, and considering the composition of Supreme Court, that is the good that it is the good guy. It's a bit surprised. It's so interesting. You know, I think it's a really, uh, that is a really good question. I think there's a couple of things. I think LT's point about disparities may well be driving it. It may be a concern that the more below guideline sentences we have, the more we're going to run into a fear of unwarranted disparities. It may be that the courts of appeals are trying to get, keep sentences within the guidelines range because they're worried about disparities. It, It may also be, the um, sort of under-policing thing I'm talking about may be a result of fatigue by the courts of appeals. Uh, the Seventh Circuit had a recent case in which they said something like, we've seen in the last in the 10 years since Booker over 200 sentencing appeals for procedural error you know, um, of a within-guideline sentence. I mean, they had some number. And, and it, it became clear in that case that they were just getting sort of tired of these appeals. And so that may explain why some courts are kind of like, Take doing these carve-outs and sort of saying, eh, it's fine, let the judges ignore all of these facts, and I'm just, we're just going to affirm this sentence and let's move on with the business and not have this clogging up our system. But I do think it's a really good question, and I don't have a great answer, and I, don't, I haven't found any sort of like empirical explanation for it in the time that I've been thinking about this. Yeah, Alexis. Just to pick up on that last question, um, so you mentioned that the Eighth Circuit is particularly bad in this, on this front, besides the Seventh Circuit. Are there account about how many of the circuits are sort of in the Eighth Circuit camp, or on the flip side, are there some circuits that seem to be like they're doing what they're supposed to do under? Yeah, and some circuits move around. So the Eighth Circuit has now seemed to really post Pepper have gotten it a little more. Um, oh, there's another thing that may explain it, which is. Uh, political uh, political persuasions of the folks on each court. So the Eighth Circuit at the time of Gall and Pepper had, I believe, the most uh, no, the highest number of Bush II appointees of any court in the country. That may also be explaining something. Um, but uh, the Fourth Circuit, for example, is very interesting because the Fourth Circuit, which used to be considered a very conservative circuit, has actually been kind of at the forefront of recognizing the importance of, the, of following the Supreme Court's law on this and has really uh, almost gone you know, even further than the Supreme Court would expect as far as policing um, properly you know, and ensuring that judges aren't committing procedural error and expecting a lot of the district court judges um, but giving them a lot of leeway. So it's, and, and different courts come down in different ways. So sometimes, you know, I actually, you know, there's other over, there's other under-policing rebellions that I see happening right now and sometimes the breakdown of the courts is different depending on what rebellion is happening. So it's kind of interesting. Yes? Um, placing a motion in the courtroom is a complicated one. And I was wondering if you could comment on the, the tie-in between the emotional arguments about defendants and their terrible circumstances and the fact that it's an emotional topic and maybe there's some kind of um, rejection of, of these emotional pleas in this context. Well, I think, you know, I think you can't really distill it all down to emotion. I mean, I just think that it's not about emotional pleas. It's about who is this person? Why did they commit this crime? How did they end up in this circumstance that they committed the crime? What are their chances of not recidivating? You know, I mean, a lot of the questions that you might frame as emotion, I would frame as questions of the possibility of rehabilitation, the risk or, or lack thereof of this person recidivating, and specific the, the, the lack there, therefore for the need for specific deterrence for a sp- certain person. You know, there's different ways of, of looking at 
facts about a person and reasons why somebody committed a crime. And I think in talking to judges, sentencing judges, I think they really want to know about the person standing before them. I, I think a lot of judges felt really their hands were tied in the time of mandatory guidelines. And still today, we still have one sentencing scheme that completely ties judges' hands, which is mandatory minimum penalties, where under you're convicted under a certain statute, like of a certain amount of drugs, you automatically get 10 years in prison, and the judge cannot consider anything about you, anything about your history or the circumstances of your crime, because some of these things aren't even emotional. They're about what are the particulars of this person's offense? What role did they play? You know, were they coerced? Etc. Um, there's all sorts of things that the guidelines really did put off limits that you really might want a judge to consider. So, yeah, Stephen. How much of this is just a product of the guidelines being out of whack? Because it seems that if only 2.3% of judges impose sentences that are above the guidelines, that they're really not actually in the middle as far as what is reasonable. Can we just fix that? Because I like rules, one for LT's reasons, Um, so I, I think there is something, maybe you see some merit in the guidelines, but how much of it is just because the guidelines are off, they're too high? I, I think a lot of judges feel the guidelines are too high, and I think it's, it's really interesting. There was this 2010 survey of federal district court judges about the guidelines, and it asked a million questions, but one of the questions was, you know, in how many cases or in what percentage of cases do you think the following guidelines are, are too high? And there were one kind of case, um, possession of child pornography cases, something like almost 80% of the judges who were surveyed, which was a big part of the federal bench, said those guidelines are, you know, are, are too high. So it was really interesting. Like there are a lot of judges, I think, who think the guidelines are too high. And it's a really good question about if we were to pull down all the guidelines, would you see a lot more within guideline sentences? Or if we were to expand the ranges, right? Where, let's say, Stephen, to sort of balance you against me, right, maybe your just right would be, let's pull down the ranges, let's have broader ranges, where the judge is exercising discretion, but within a broader range, and where we're more likely to have judges basically staying within the range, because they've got a little more leeway and the ranges are more reasonable. You know, I think that's another alternative. I don't frankly see that happening. I think that Political pressures uh, are such that legislators want to be tough on crime. I don't see um, the Sentencing Commission is, you know, terrified of Congress defunding it if it lowers guideline penalties. It's really interesting to talk about that whole, those pressures. And so fundamentally, I just don't see that happening. And I think in part that's why I say the system we have right now is, is the right one, where the people making the decisions are the people who are looking the defendant in the eye. And the decisions are being made in a more transparent way than, for example, if you gave prosecutors all the power rather than the district judges. Yeah, Andrew. So with the concern about the more conservatives, do you think that if the court of appeal shifted towards a more robust review for like substantive reasonableness, that would fix the unwarranted disparities thing without pushing, without doing this thing where they're sort of pushing people back towards mandatory guidelines? That's a really interesting question. Yeah. I mean, as you know, there's really not much review for substantive reasonableness. Actually, it depends. Some, this is a weird thing that I didn't even get into, but there's procedural reasonableness and there's substantive reasonableness, and so a court, a sentencing judge could be reversed for committing sort of a substantive error, actually just imposing a sentence that was too high or too low as a substantive matter. There are, the Seventh Circuit almost has no substantive reasonableness review. There are other courts that, that basically consider everything to be substantive reasonableness review and not procedural reasonableness review. I think 
I don't know. That is a really good question and a tough one because I think to some degree you have to first get all the courts to understand what's substantive and what's procedural and get everybody think, speaking the same language on that, which we don't even have, before we could even get to that. And Justice Scalia says substantive reasonableness review is unconstitutional. Right? <laughs> right, Will? <laughs> well, thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.